to focus on just the meaning and the wonder of it. Whatever the origins of Christmas might be in ancient history, we have the opportunity to redeem and use this time to consider just the wonder that God, the infinite, glorious one, would become human, take on flesh and become one of us. And this is such an important part of the truth of Christ, we often miss it. We often rush right to the other really important truths, such as his death and resurrection. Those are the central truths, of course. But sometimes we miss the wonder of the incarnation and all that it means. All that it means certainly for his death and resurrection, but all that it means just in and of itself and all the truths that flow from it. So we've been taking time as a church to think about the incarnation, think about this, this truth, and we've done a number of messages, two previous ones. By the way, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here, the lead pastor. And welcome. If you're a guest with us, we're glad you're here. We pray God's blessing on you. Let us know how we can help you. If you haven't figured it out, we're a pretty laid-back group. Um, we've experienced the grace of God, uh, so there's something we have in common in that. But, um, but we're just normal people like you, and we want to help you in any way we can, really to be used by God to help wherever you might be in your spiritual journey, uh, whether you don't have any belief and you're just curious or you're looking for a church or just passing through. Let us know how we can help you. So we're digging into this truth, and normally we go through books of the Bible, but we take times at, at various times during the year to look at key topics, and, and of course the Scripture itself does that, so we take our instruction there, and, and we're looking at this topic of the Incarnation. So first we looked at the idea of the image of God, the reality that humans are the image of God, they image God, they reflect Him, and how uh, Jesus came basically to rescue us from having marred that image and restore and redeem us. He is the perfect image of God. And in him, we uh, are restored in being the images of God as his people and corporately on the earth and ultimately for eternity. Then last week, we took a look at how Jesus took on flesh to be the human hero we all need and how he relates to us. He rescues us and redeems us. And this week, I want to look at the biblical truth that Jesus became a human so that he could unite us and unite all the faithful humanity with the Godhead. So I want to look at this topic that he took on flesh to become one of us so that we could join in union with God himself, the triune God. Uh, it's a pretty wild thought, but it's very biblical. I hope you'll see as we go through it. So we'll be looking in John chapter 17. Before we go there, just an opening illustration. Have you ever thought about the impact of relationships? Have you ever thought about how relationships with others change us? Now they change us for good or for bad. Hopefully your relationships all change you for good. I think of one relationship that has changed me for good, and that's with my wife. Sorry, I didn't mean to get emotional. Sorry, honey, this is not helpful for you either. Um, but I, I was a different person before I was married. Um, and I don't know, other than my wife, there's anyone here who knew me back then. Uh, but I was a different guy, um, and being married to Peg has changed me a lot. I wouldn't have got high marks for compassion in those days. Um, I had a friend who called me the drill sergeant, um, and so I was the man with the plan, didn't have a whole lot of patience or sensitivity for folks that were slow on the uptake. Um, I was the man with the plan, not much time for those not on board, and then, of course, uh, God brought my wife into my life who loves people, has tremendous compassion and sensitivity, and just enjoys people, and not that I ever didn't enjoy people, just so you know, but I, but I was the sergeant, 
And anyhow, through my wife, uh, I've, I've been changed. I think I'm a different person. You wouldn't have wanted the 23-year-old version of me as your pastor, believe me. Um, and hopefully the 55-year-old married version can be a good pastor for you. And it really came through my wife, and I can, I can take you back and show that. I can actually just introduce you to an old friend or two, and they'll, just, they'll make it clear very quickly the difference. And I say all that because it illustrates the reality of relationships and how they change us, how they're meant to change us for good. And there's a relationship that is far more significant than any human relationship, far more significant than, than marriage and any other relationship. It's our relationship with a particular human being called Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And this relationship is and does change us radically. And we are brought in to a relationship with God through Jesus that profoundly, radically changes us. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about this reality that Christ took on flesh to identify with us and draw us in to this glorious, deep, and eternal relationship with God himself, our triune God. So let's pray and ask God for help for me to teach this and explain it, for us all to understand it, and ultimately to believe and apply it. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for who you are. And thank you because of who you are, you have revealed yourself through your word. Lord, you revealed yourself certainly in creation and all your glory and goodness, but in your word, you let us know the particulars about yourself that, that we need to know. And thank you, Lord, that, that your scripture is sufficient to teach us these key and core things. And I pray today as we look at John 17 and some other passages, we'd know you better. We'd know how we relate to you better. And Lord, as a result of that, it wouldn't just be knowledge, intellectual knowledge, but a knowledge that transforms us and we can do that uh, we cannot do that without you and your power so come Holy Spirit dwell with us empower each of us to hear and understand and believe and use me Lord to do my best by your grace to serve this end in your glory and we ask all these things in Christ's name amen I want to look at John chapter 17 verses 20 through 26 we'll project it if you have your Bible in your hand way better to look there um, and this is part of a prayer that Jesus was praying uh, before he went to the cross. And in this prayer, he, uh, he's praying for a number of things, but in this particular section, he's actually praying for the oneness of God's people. And the reason I chose this passage is because as he prays for that oneness, he builds it on the oneness of our relationship with God, the oneness of God himself and our relationship with him. So I want you to hear those truths. We'll, we'll kind of get into it and uh, look at it in more detail. But first, John 17, 20 through 26. It says, Jesus says and as he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be, uh, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me, before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these 
know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is Jesus' prayer. Before he goes to the cross, he's praying here for his people, for us. That means us here as believers today. This prayer is effective for us. It's intended for us. And through this prayer, we learn tremendous things about God. We learn tremendous things about our relationship with God. And we learn this tremendous truth that we are one with God and he with us. And this truth that Jesus prays for, this reality, is meant to change everything about us. So let's take time to dig into that and learn about it. Um, and I'm going to talk about three aspects, being one with the Trinity, and then being one uh, physically and one eternally. And we're just going to look at this scripture and others and dig into this. So, so Jesus is praying this. This is uh, a prayer probably in the upper room before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying for his people. He's praying for the unity of his people. And that's a, a worthy topic that we could do a number of messages on. But what I'm doing in this passage is not so much looking at the unity of his people, as important as that is, but what undergirds his prayer for unity. And that's the relationship uh, among the Godhead and our relationship with God in Christ. So he's praying that we might be one. And as he goes through it, he compares this oneness to the oneness with the Father. Do you see that in verse 21? Do we have it? Yep, good. We have it up there for you to see in John chapter 17 verse 21, he compares it with the oneness with the Father. He says, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now that should stop us in our tracks. Because he's saying, just as we experience this oneness, Father and Son, just as I am in you, you are in me, we experience this oneness that's profound, May they know this oneness, certainly together, but with us. So the ground of the unity of the, the whole church is, of course, in the unity of the Godhead and our unity with him. So, so just as the Trinity experiences oneness, we also are one with them. Now, there's some qualifiers there, of course. We're not God. We'll never be God. But we're brought into this communion with God himself that's profound, and it's the basis for the unity of the whole church, of course. That's how Jesus is praying. Now, it's important, just background, and I don't want to just move past this without mentioning it. It's important to understand that Jesus is human, but he's also God eternal. He's God the Son. And that God um, is one being. He's only one being, but there are three persons. And so we see this about Jesus, and we'll get into explaining that a little bit more shortly. But we know that Jesus is God because there are verses in Scripture. And so one great place is actually in John chapter 1, in verses 1, 14, and 18. If we just follow through that, we see what it says about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, speaking of Jesus as the Word, as the one that communicates. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he is God. And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, speaking of Jesus, the only God, there's only one God, he is the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So this verse, and others as well, 
if we looked at the whole Bible, it teaches us that God is three in one, one in three. He is one being. He's not three beings. He's one being. And they are coexistent together as one being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there are three persons. And they have this perfect and eternal relationship as one being and three persons. They are three in one, one in three. They are a tri-unity. And that's where we get the word trinity. So the word trinity is a word to explain what the Bible teaches. It's a succinct word that explains that he is, God is one in three. And it's really impossible for us to get our human brains around that. Um, it's, it's beyond understanding how can he be one being and yet three persons. Here's my best answer. I don't know. But it is what it is. It is the actually ultimate is what it is. God is the ultimate is what it is. And he says it this way, I am that I am. So this reality of, of his being, one in three, is the ultimate reality. And, and, and I could argue at length from the Bible uh, that everything else flows actually from that reality. Anyhow, the whole point here is that Jesus is referencing this relationship and this unity among the Godhead, and he's tying in our unity with him. And of course, the church's unity together. And so he wants us to understand that just as they are one together, just as they have this love together, we are brought into this relationship with the Godhead through Christ. He takes on flesh, identifies with us to bring us into this relationship with God. That is amazingly profound. There is nothing more glorious. There's no relationship more intimate more loving. Um, there's nothing better than to be connected to God in this amazing way. And that's what he is saying here. Uh, he says it again in verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. And Jesus speaks of the love that they have as well, right? So we're part of this amazing love. As he prays, he says um, that the world may know that you sent me and love them. So, so Jesus wants our oneness to show that to prove basically that God's real and that Jesus was sent and that the world would know that the Father has loved us even as he loved who? Jesus. That's amazing. There's no greater love. Think about it. There's no greater love than the love of the Father for the Son. He's the eternal, perfect Father. He's flawless. He's, he's not flawed like human fathers. He's the perfect father. He provides. He, he guides. He oversees. He, he, he loves. Um, and, and he's this perfect father. And Jesus is the perfect son, eternal son. And, and his relating to the father is perfect. He loves the father. He enjoys the father. The father and the son have this eternal, perfect father-son relationship. And, and so there's no greater love, right, than what you'd see in that relationship because it's perfect, so that makes it a loving relationship, but it's eternal. It, it's forever, from forever past to forever future. So if you had a really good relationship, right, say you had a perfect relationship, as you live longer and love each other more, it gets better and better, right? Well, this is eternity, and this is God. So it's an infinite love. And yet, Jesus says that the Father has loved us, even as he loves Jesus. 
It doesn't get better than that, guys. That's the ground of everything else. And these truths are not just like geeky theological truths. I'm not giving a message just to be geeky or something. These are truths that are the very foundation of how we think about our faith and ourselves and our relationship with God and what we do. So to ground ourselves in this reality that we're drawn into this communion with the Trinity, it's a perfect, perfectly loving, eternal, glorious relationship. And it's with the Father and the Son. It doesn't get better than that, but there's actually more because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so all three persons of the Trinity are involved in this intimate relationship. So we can look elsewhere in Scripture just to see that the Holy Spirit, of course, is part of this because He is one being with the Father and the Son. They, they don't do things without each other, okay? Uh, that's what it means to be one being. They are three persons, and, and there are roles and functions that, that they do as distinct persons, but they're always together. And it's hard to figure out. We'll never figure it out. But, but, so they are together, all three in one. And of course then, it would say things like it does in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So we are in Him. He is in us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Um, Romans 8 characterizes new uh, believers this way. He says, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, now you, however, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So if you're someone who's realized you can't make it on your own, you run to God for forgiveness and righteousness. You run to the reality of what Christ did as God in the flesh, bearing your sins on the cross, living the perfect life you never could have lived. I could never have lived. He, he bore, took his righteous life, offered it up on the cross, bore our sins, and the sins of all who would trust in him, bore our sins, paid in full, and then calls us in the power of the Spirit to believe this good news, simply receive it. it, it there, there are not like all these loopholes and all these things you have to go through. You simply need to believe it in a way that you receive it. Yes, I, I believe this, I want this. And, and, and through Christ, his death, and then his resurrection, as a result of that, we are drawn in to this life and this relationship, this unity with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the believer is characterized by this. So thus Paul says in Romans 8, you, however, are not in the flesh, you're not your old person anymore, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So it's the Spirit, but it's also the Spirit of God, speaking of God the Father. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, wait a second, I thought it was the Spirit oh, well, that was in us. Or actually, it's the Spirit of God that's in us. Or it's the Spirit of Christ that's in us. Or is it Christ that's in us? Yes, yes, yes. They're three in one. And this is how a believer is characterized. God dwells in you. And everything is changed. Because, he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then there's all these things that follow. All the things you're called to do as a believer, all the things you're called to live in, flow out of this reality and nothing else. That is the power for new life. That is the power for your identity. That is the core here in every way. Matter of fact, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 to 
29, speaking of, of how God is reaching people who are Gentiles, he says, To them God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What is the hope of glory? What is, what is your ground to have hope, to know that there's glory, that it gets better, that there's redemption, that there's change, that we'll be rescued fully and we have a, a future life, a new creation that will be great and eternal? What is the hope of glory? Christ in you. So this ground of, of our union with him and Christ in us and us in Christ and, of course, the, the whole Godhead in us, us belonging to God in this profound way is, is the basis for all these things. It's amazing just to think about it. Uh, he is in us. We are in him. This is the infinite and glorious God. And he dwells within us. And we dwell in, in communion with him. This is the God who cannot be contained in all creation. He's glorious beyond comprehension. All of creation in its vastness, its intricacy, it's both vast in the, on a large scale and the small scale, by the way. It's beyond, I think, probing. We'll, we'll never finish probing creation. It's that great. Yet creation does not contain God. It displays him, but, but it cannot contain God. This is the God, the infinite one, who's glorious beyond comprehension. And not just in, in the power and the order we see in creation, but also the things that he does in creation. Uh, he, he has displayed his character in and through Christ. This is the God who's perfect in love, infinite in love, perfect in holiness and justice. He's glorious. The, the mighty angels cannot approach the fullness of his presence. These mighty seraphim stand and sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He is so great, he's beyond us greater than anything we could imagine. He dwells in unapproachable light. That's how glorious he is, all right? And he's more powerful than all the creation, all the suns and supernovas in the universe, all the deepest thoughts put together, all the greatest love assembled together. He is infinitely greater, and yet this God dwells in us. And we dwell in him. That's the wonder of the gospel. That's the wonder of Christ taking on flesh, identifying with us, rescuing us. We're saved from our sin, but he doesn't leave us there. There's a reason he does that. To save us from our sin to himself. To live in this truth that he dwells within us in all of his glory. Now, I hope it's just kind of helping you, and, and by the way, as I studied this, I'm like, whoa, I never thought about this quite like this before. So it was kind of mind expanding for me. So I hope this is helping your mind expand in a good way. It's really kind of freaky in some ways when you start to think about it because the infinitely glorious God lives in us. Could you imagine if you went to your doctor for your annual checkup and they said, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing great. Matter of fact, there's a whole galaxy inside of me galaxy, there's planets and stars and supernovas that all dwell in asteroids and moons. They all are inside of me. I think your doctor might say, well, we need to get some other things inside of you, like some medicine to help you with that. It's a wild thought. And, and, and yet, uh, I'm not saying you have planets and stars in you, by the way. Um, you have God who's greater than all these things in you. And that's the reality. 
It's amazing. And this is a, a truth in Scripture that's there. I hope you see it. It's throughout. It's, it's the ground for so much. It's our, it's our destination as believers. And it's a truth that tops the greatest, wildest fantasy you could ever dream of. Think of all those science fiction movies, right? All the fantasy stories and you know, all the things where there's some alien that invades your body or something like that. And it, There's no story like this one because this is the good and eternal God who dwells in us and transforms us and brings us into this relationship. And there are so many implications from this. It changes us. It should change us in powerful ways. It should help us understand that we are not simply individuals trying to get along somehow as believers. We're not simply DNA and action. We're not just mere humans. We are united with God through Christ and part of this eternal Union with the glorious Trinity. We are not alone. He is always with us. He has overcome. And so all these promises in Scripture flow out of this truth that we're united with Him through Christ. All the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And you are in Jesus. And because of this union with the Godhead, everything else, all these promises are ours. And so John can say in 1 John, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. You have overcome the world. You have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Speaking of the devil and his minions. He's greater. He's in us. He dwells with us. And we're never alone. Jesus gives us the basis of our confidence in life and in mission in Matthew chapter 28. And he says, as he commands us, he teaches us, he calls us to these things, right? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So he's, he commands us to live a certain way, to bring the mission, to bring this truth, because, by the way, he wants that John 17 prayer fulfilled for all of his people, this countless number that's out there. So he commissions us and tells us all these things, but he gives us such an important promise with it. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us. We're never alone. He empowers us for mission so we can be confident. We read about all the ways that Jesus reaches people and we, we are wowed by that. Wow, there's no one like that. Well, this is the same Jesus who's with you and in you. And as you go in mission, he's there to help you, to love others, to, to be able to get the words together, to somehow say something. So there's confidence there's, there's power for loneliness. There's, I could, we could just go into a, a thousand promises in Scripture and see how they're all rooted in this truth. I just want us to see this, this unity with the, the Godhead is at the core of who we are and how we must understand ourselves. And so my challenge would be, how do you understand yourself if you are a believer? What is your chief experience of how you think about yourself? How do you feel when you get up in the morning and think about your life? How do you feel when life is hard? How do you feel when life is good? You see, this truth is meant to change all these things. To redefine how we think about ourselves in light of our relationship with God through Christ. And therefore change what we do. And by the way, there's more to it. So let's go to point number two. We are one with the Trinity. We are one with Him physically. It's not just a spiritual unity, and this is an important point. 
Because we can create a, a false perception of, of Christianity if we think it's just a spiritual unity. It is not just a spiritual unity. It's a physical unity too. And that probably makes it seem even freakier. But it is. Uh, understanding this truth changes our, our understanding of the physical and of our bodies. Because our bodies are part of this union. We as humans are essentially body and soul together. We're a union of body and soul. And there are all sorts of ideas that are out there all sorts of things I think we probably assume about who we are. And there's a tendency to kind of go to one extreme or the other, right? Being human is just your body. It's all your body. It's just biology. Biology and action. Or the other side, it's you're really just a soul. And your body actually is kind of a, a, not a good thing. You want to get rid of it. If you really want to be holy, you don't live bodily. You live spiritually. You live on your soul. That's not biblical. It's not holier. It's not holier to, to kind of be a disembodied soul. You're a body and soul. That's how God made you. That's how he made us in creation. That's how he made you. And that's how he's going to remake you. And that's important to understand. And so this union with the Godhead is as a full human, body and soul. And so you're joined with Christ physically, not just spiritually. Seems a little freaky, Right? Well, let me help you see in Scripture, because that's where I want you to ground things. It's all in Scripture. It's all, of course, through Jesus taking on flesh. That's the first step. God is not God is spirit, but God takes on flesh in Jesus. He becomes a human who is body and soul. So now there's a body that's part of the Godhead. It's hard to understand, and there's certainly qualifiers in there, but the God, the eternal Son, took on flesh and now is in union with the whole Godhead as a man as a human. And so there's a physical part of the union. And then we are joined with Christ and there's a physical part there. So let me just take you to some scriptures to show you and, and I'll try to be brief. And, and if you have questions after this, by the way, feel free to come up and ask me. I'll, I'll do my best to show you elsewhere as well. I can't go through all the scriptures. But there's one important scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you want to turn there. Again, this is a section of scripture where the point isn't so much on this union but there's, a, there's an application point. Now, in this context, interestingly, the application point is sexual ethics and purity. But the ground of what Paul's saying about sexual ethics is the union we have with God in Christ, physically. It's profound what he says here. So let me read, and then, and then we'll dissect it a little bit. He says in verse 13, food, he's quoting, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This was a quote probably by the Corinthians. And then he says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are, your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So, your body 
your physical body, my physical body, our physical bodies as believers are not just throwaway things. They're not just like appendages to our souls that just help us get along in this physical world. No, they're part of who we are, and they are members of Christ. In other words, our physical bodies are part of Christ. There's a union with Christ. We can't understand it all, but there's a union with Christ physically that's real. And he is a, a human being. He's God eternal, and we have a union with him where our bodies are an important part of that union. That's the whole basis here. He's saying your bodies are members of Christ. You are united with Christ bodily, physically. Therefore, don't take part of Christ's body and misuse it. Don't use your body in uh, opposition to God's design, his good design. Don't be sexually immoral with your body. But there's all sorts of implications, of course, besides this. Paul's trying to get at the sexual ethics issue because that was a problem in Corinth. But notice where he grounds it. He doesn't say, you know, you should just do this because you're supposed to do it. He doesn't even say, you know, you should do this because it's going to be healthier long term. And those things are true. He grounds it in something profoundly deep. He, He wants to go to the deepest thing he can ground it in so that they understand. And I want us to understand this is the deepest ground for ethics, what we do and why we do it, that our bodies belong to God. We are in a union with God where our bodies are part of that. And therefore, we are to use our bodies in ways that glorify God, that reflect that truth. We belong to Him, and the Spirit of God dwells in us. God dwells in us, in our bodies. He's not present just in our souls. Like, so don't think that. Like somehow, you know, there's the soul part of me, and God lives inside that soul part of me but not the body. He would never come in my body. No, that's right. Your bodies are the temple of God. Your bodies. This stuff is the temple of God. Oh boy, does this change how we think about our bodies, doesn't it? In so many ways. It it changes how we understand and, and how we treat our bodies. How we think about our bodies long term. You're going to have the same body in the new creation, but it will be renewed. It will be a resurrected version. It will be the same and it will be different. Just like Jesus, right? Jesus had a body that was based on his earthly body. But it was a resurrected one. So, So get used to this one. It's a good thing. It'll be fixed in many ways and glorified. It'll be better, but it'll still be you. I'll, I, I guess I'll still have my height and double XL head on this medium body and that's okay because God decided to do that and I guess he'll tell me why um, but anyhow you know this this is God's design and so how we regard our bodies there's a there's a dignity isn't there in how we understand bodies our own bodies and the bodies of others I mean it, it elevates things in an amazing way and to think that you know right now in the Godhead there's a human body, you know, Christ is part of that union. So, so it dignifies all of humanity, really, but certainly it dignifies us as his people. There's this one flesh. Now, it's elsewhere in Scripture, by the way. If you want to look, you can look later. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, the, the basis of his argument for how husbands ought to treat their wives is based on this argument. And, and so he points back, Paul points back to Genesis 2, where the first 
husband and wife basically become one flesh. That's the promise, the blessing of marriage. And he says, actually, it's not about marriage as much as about Jesus and his church. And so we are one flesh. We are one flesh now with Jesus, and that will be fulfilled and uh, consummated when, when he returns. So we're one body. We're not just one spirit. We're one body. And so we ought to think differently about our bodies. We ought to treat them with respect and, and, and realize that God dwells in us. It, it changes. It should change how we act. Uh, there's a movie from 1987. I remember seeing it years ago called Like Father, Like Son. Um, it's, there's a son played by Kirk Cameron, and he's magically and unexpectedly, he exchanges his body with his dad, played by Dudley Moore. So you can imagine the comedy and drama that ensues. They both live radically different after they exchange their bodies, and it, it takes them about a week to, to fix things. It, get, it all gets fixed in the end. But it's just a picture, like, for us, if we understand that God dwells in our bodies, and we dwell, we are united with him in Christ, it should make us behave radically differently. I'm not my own. I'm not my own. It's not just me and my body. We belong to him in this profound union. It, it, it changes ethics. So ethics is just like what we ought to do, right? The stuff we ought to do. These truths change how we look at our behavior. So God says, be holy because I am holy. That can seem like, like, well, of course God's holy. And that's like a crazy thing. I can't never be holy. And, and so if you don't get these truths, God seems distant to you. And he's saying, be holy because I'm holy. But if you get these truths, you realize, wait a second. He's in me and I'm in him. I'm connected in this profound way, more profound, profoundly connected than any other relationship. I am united with him in Christ. And so when he says, be holy because I'm holy, of course. Of course, I belong to him and he belongs to me. Of course, I want to be like him. Of course, I want to love like him. Of course, I want to abstain from the things that bring harm to others and, and defame his name. Of course, I do. Because this is who I am. And scripture always bases ethics on realities that are established by God already. So you don't do it to get God. You do it because you have God and you get more of him experientially, but you have everything in him already in Christ, if you've trusted him. All right, one more point very quickly. We are one with him also, not physically, not just physically, not just with the Trinity, but eternally. This is an eternal relationship. And it's established the day you trust in Jesus. It's so good, the good news is so good. You don't have to wait you don't have to wait to get things together. You don't have to wait to be holier and acceptable. All you need to do is at this moment, if you haven't yet, just say, Jesus, I want you, not my sin. You just simply need to trust. And, and, and that's the, uh, at that point of simply trusting, you are, at that point, a new creation, a new believer. And you enter into this relationship that's an eternal one with God. And it only gets better in Jesus. And so it's an eternal relationship where we're going to be made more and more like Christ. We're going to become like him. Jesus is saying that he wants to show us the glory, his glory. He wants us to see it and share it in heaven. Um, for, uh, Peter says in 2 Peter, just some amazing things. Uh, he says, 
Uh, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we're called to what? His own glory and excellence. We're called to enter into this glory and excellence and this greatness and holiness which, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now you'll never be God. You're not God. You'll never be God. But you are brought into this relationship where his nature, what he's like, particularly as we see it in Jesus, you become partakers of that, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, for this very reason, make every effort. And it goes on to the sorts of efforts that we're called to. Because you are this and have this, because you're called to this, because you're joined to him in this way, therefore make every effort. Well, I mean, of course you want to make every effort to become more and more like him in this eternal relationship. This is who we are. This is what we have in him. And I believe that these truths teach us just to think differently about us, about who we are, about how we belong to him, and all that that means. I hope it makes sense. I hope you can see that. I have another illustration, but I, I want to transition. But um, I'd love, to, I mean, I want to do all I can to help us all get this. But this is what Christmas is about. This is by far the best Christmas gift you could ever have. All these things are yours in Jesus. You are united with God in Christ. You are a new creation. You are forgiven. And you have the most glorious, loving, eternal relationship you could ever, ever dream of in Him. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths that are ours. We thank you, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to wonder at what we have in you and to be powerfully motivated to make every effort to live in light of these things, to love others and to live in this love and to, to never be the same again as we ponder these truths. All these things are yes and amen in you, Jesus, God in the flesh. We're so glad that you took on flesh, lived this perfect life, and then offered it up for us to rescue and redeem us in all these good and glorious ways. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.